Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. This is Robbie Martin. Welcome, everybody. It's been a while. Welcome, everyone. Been a while. We did some great podcasts with uh, presidential candidate Mike Gravel for the second time on Media Roots Radio. Robbie, you've done some incredible in-depth investigations. Um, uh, you know, one about uh, like art students who ended up being Mossad agents back uh, a couple decades ago, and a really cool episode about the Red Bull Music Academy. Um, how it's kind of siphoned all this energy from musicians and corporatized a lot of a lot of stuff. So everyone should listen to those for sure. Yeah, check those episodes out. Um, we interviewed two different people for the Red Bull Music Academy episode. Um, and I've also been doing uh, live streams on YouTube um, on a semi-regular basis. And I did one about... Uh, sort of assessing Tulsi Gabbard's um, foreign policy rhetoric from an anti-imperialist point of view, and then another one about Trump's uh, Iran war buildup. So, um, yeah, you can check those out on my YouTube channel. I'll be posting them on Twitter when I'm doing them. And then the the actual recordings of them I'm probably only going to make available to patrons only, but the live streams will still be, um, you can watch them as they're streaming. Yeah, and you launched your own Patreon to... Uh, to kind of help you out with just your own individual live streams that you're that you've been doing lately. Yeah, um, and there's already a couple posts up there for patrons only. One of them is a broadcast I did on the 9/11 anniversary. It's about three hours long. That's quite a lot Damn. to digest. Um, <laughs> but there'll probably be, you know, I don't know what I'm gonna do with it yet, other than live streams. Um, but it'll probably grow into something a little different than it's starting. But live streams for now. It's just a really immediate way to get content up. I don't even have time to question it. So it's kind of, you know, it's like done, <laughs> done, donezo once you upload it. You can edit it afterwards, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to upload them as is. So I appreciate people being patient with me so far and not working out all the technical kinks. Um, so some of my live streams will just start out with me, like looking into the camera for a whole minute, <laughs> trying to figure out shit <laughs> and not saying anything. So well, I'm going to. I'm going to eventually figure all that out and make them more professional. Um, but I appreciate the support so far. And, uh, and yeah, you should come on one, one, one time. When yeah, I'm doing be fun. Them. I mean, I think that you would do fucking awesome doing like mini, very heavy agenda esque videos, but yeah, the, it, it does take a lot of work. It's counterintuitive to where media is going, but I guess I'm, you know, that's where I'm at right now with empire files. It's like the opposite of where everyone else in media is going. It's like taking weeks to, to put together content. And I like being able to put together something that's, um, that's really slick and has like a kind of a timeless kind of character to it. So that's what we're trying to do right now with this Gaza documentary that, um, that we're almost done with. It's going to be incredible. We push back the screening to June 20th downtown LA at the downtown independent theater tickets are now available on Eventbrite. You can look at our Facebook and Twitter to buy those. Um, there's VIP seats available. There's also seats, uh, tickets available that you can get a t-shirt with an incredible design, a special edition just for this screening. Um, it's really going to be epic. You guys, I mean, going through this footage and it's, it's the most comprehensive documentation of all the war crimes and the violations of the Geneva conventions, the protected categories of disabled children, medics, and journalists that were all targeted by Israeli snipers in the great March and, and proof. I mean, we have it all on camera. We have interviews with the victims and it's just, 
it's going to be monumental and I hope can move the entire conversation to holding Israel accountable for its war crimes and the flagrant violations of international law um, because it's just incontrovertible at this point. Um, so I'm really excited about it. I'm excited to have it up on the big screen. And in case people are wondering, you know, why did I donate and I'm not able to see the premiere, we are going to have another premiere in New York um, to be announced the details. And also we're going to put it up for free online. So we're trying to figure out how, how best to do that, but it will be available for everyone to see because the information is, is important to get out there and to kind of create this, this wave uh, of accountability. So check it out. And also thanks to everyone who came to the, the Palestine conference last weekend in New York. I met several people who are really into Media Roots Radio. It was really fun to meet you guys, uh, you know, really staunch listeners, steadfast supporters, and I had a really great time there. Um, and it was just really motivating to be with Palestinians and to be, you know, having a lot of supporters there. So and you they said you also you met some out, listeners as, as well. Oh, totally. Yeah. And a couple, a couple patrons for Media Roots Radio that came. That's awesome. Yeah. It was really, really great. Um, and speaking of just Palestine, Robbie, uh, you know, Elon Omar and Rashida Tlaib, again, more kind of incitement to violence against them from the sitting president of the United States, uh, just over and over again. I mean, misrepresenting Rashida's words about the Holocaust, making it sound like she was saying she was comforted by the Holocaust. When if you, if you actually listen to what she was saying, she said she's comforted by the fact that Palestine was able to offer a refuge for Holocaust victims. And so it was just shockingly disingenuous and absolutely vile to see like everyone, you know, from the president down the line, completely distorting these people's words. Who is the source of that spin against her? Good question. All I know is that Trump just boosts it. And then it's just like all hell breaks loose because it doesn't even matter anymore. Yeah, I mean, I noticed that over the last few days, I, I was trying to figure out who started it. Um, mm -hmm. It seemed even more of a, I mean, a lot more of a stretch than even trying to spin Elan Omar's comments about about 9-11. Yeah. Like just way more egregious. Because I yeah. could see how certain conservatives reading um, Omar's comments in the full context would still be outraged by it. But like no one, if they read her full statement about the Holocaust, would be like outraged or offended because it was like completely taken out of context. It was like so obvious right. how much it was taken out of context to make it seem like she was saying something else. Yeah, I mean, when you get to the point where the president of the United States, the most powerful person in the entire world, is inciting violence against two Muslims, um, and the, the only two sitting Congress people who, you know, support BDS, pro-Palestinian, and really singling them out constantly and saying they should be fired. I mean, it's really, really scary. And again, we've talked about this rhetoric has consequences, and it's it's only a matter of time before something horrible happens again. And I you know, again, I'm saying again, because there's been several massacres of Muslims, um, synagogue shootings, burning of mosques. So this is already happening. It's escalating under Trump. And, and it is directly a result of this kind of rhetoric that's being encouraged. Yeah, I mean, it is really, really weird to think that Trump's rhetoric on Muslims and the way that he sort of unlocked the door for his base to go after Muslims is much more extreme than sort of the neoconservative rhetoric mm -hmm. that came out after 
and it it's almost it's just strange to me because it almost makes that seem like more compassionate in terms of like the rhetoric. Imagine what it would have been like if the Bush administration unlocked that same like unleashed those same hell gates in terms of like rhetoric against Muslims and didn't just let Fox News and AM right wing talk radio do all the heavy lifting for them. It seems like that's the way they prefer to do it during his administration. This is different where it's like full spectrum president all the way down, including all the media apparatuses are all beating the same drum. And I think I think it's probably fair to say also that even if Ilhan Omar never said anything about Israel and but let's just say she was like the most moderate centrist Democrat ever and didn't say anything controversial, the same level of attacks would still be coming against her, I think. They would just find other things to say about her. They would say that she's a, she's an ISIS plant. I mean, they would just find other hyperbolic like smears to use against her just because of the way she looks. Right. So yeah, um, exactly. It shouldn't surprise us, but what's I mean, it is different than the Bush administration, the Obama administration that it's amped up. Like we're lucky in a way that we've gotten fourteen or fifteen years of a of a time lapse between nine eleven and now. We're like. The Islamophobia is actually being like ramped up very intentionally. You know, I think feel like ISIS really created an opportunity to do that also. But Obama's administration didn't play into that. I mean, they even did it to the point where they started like making conservatives feel like they were covering up terrorism. You know, like the Pulse <laughs> yeah. nightclub shooting, they redacted the part of the transcript where he talked about ISIS because they didn't want to like understandably didn't want to generate hysteria and like promote ISIS. Like I feel like in that instance, the Obama administration was actually making a good decision, but then the right wing takes that and then inflates it into this thing. Well, it's an ISIS attack and the Obama administration's covering it up. So, um, you know, all this context is important, but I think ISIS really did move the needle and allowed the right wing media here and just the mainstream media to lay the groundwork for that Islamophobia. So of course, it's not and like just rationalize Trump. it. What? Yeah, right. I said, and just have some sort of rationalization for it. Of in course, the eyes yeah. Of the I mean, even Vice. I mean, that I put that in yeah. my documentary. It seemed like Vice was trying to ratchet that up as well. I love when people pull up Vice celebrating Gaddafi dying, <laughs> like the Vice account. Oh, where like, Shane Yay. Smith is like, "Fuck that motherfucker." I didn't, he didn't actually say that, but I mean, pretty much. <laughs> the hipster arm of the empire. Um, what else was going to say? Oh yeah, Trump. At the recent rally, that guy shouting out, like, should, can't we just kill um, immigrants? And he was like, maybe in the panhandle you can get away with that. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, it's more. I mean, have you been watching Veep, Abby? Oh, my God. You've Dude, been, have you the watched last the newest season, season was so goddamn good. Wait, you, so you watched the newest? Yeah, dude. Okay. I thought it was So spoiler brilliant. warning to anybody who hasn't watched it. This is the last. This is the series finale of Veep. And... One thing that I appreciate that the show has carried through, it's like, especially in the last few seasons, it's gotten, um, it's been a very mean-spirited show. Every character is, an, is a piece of shit. I mean, there's almost like no redeemable characters in the entire show. They make all politicians look like monsters. And, and this season, one of like their interns, I don't even know how you would describe him. Like he seems mentally retarded the way they portray Jonah? him. Yeah, in the show, like he's just the most idiotic, <laughs> right? You know, per, like he's character. like the Trump character. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but he and then now he's in this new season. He's actually running for president, and every time he does a rally, they have this recurring joke in the show, which I th think is brilliantly done, where someone will just yell from the audience, 
kill her or kill him. And he's like, yes, sure. Yeah, yeah. And he just like responds. <laughs> I just, you have to see it for yourself. But it's the only show I've seen that's really touched on some of this stuff and done like it properly. Well, it's a brilliant take on Hillary also because uh, because Julia Louis Dreyfus has like totally embodies what Hillary was, oh, which yeah, is like the a inevitability vapid, candidate. Yeah, like the inevitability <laughs> candidate. Like it's my turn. That's all. It ma- that's all that mattered to her. She was willing to sell out anything and mm-hmm. anyone, including her most loyal servant. Um, who's been by her side for her entire time to kind of cover up the scandal within her quote-unquote foundation. Sounds familiar. And then also just the fact that she sold out her daughter, who's gay, um, and and just said, okay, same-sex marriage, let's abolish it. Like, anything's on the table because she just wanted to get the vote of, like, this crazy, you know, evangelical guy who was anti-gay. Like, that, it showed you how far she was willing to go just to secure and lock down the presidency. And it really embodied everything about the entire election. I mean, I honestly thought where it was going to go was that she was immediately going to be killed and then Jonah was going to be president. Because everyone was like, you know, when she picked Jonah as her VP just to get the delegates. Yeah. Everyone was like, oh, my God, please don't do this. Like, it's (laughs) he's horrible. Like, kind of just like Trump. Like, why would you even allow this possibility of Trump to win the Trump character? And then she just like didn't care. She was like, nope, I Uh I have to win. Oh, it Um, it was really good. It was absolutely brilliant, uh, really well done. And what was amazing is it's like probably the perhaps the most cutting commentary on Hillary and Trump that exists in comedy, I thought. And of course, they can get away with it because it's all under the guise of comedy. But it was like really hard hitting shit and really analogous to what we experienced and what's happening now in the political scene. And I love how like yeah, you don't even know, like, if she's a member of the Democratic or Republican Party anyway. Like, they don't even talk about Democrats or Republicans because it's just like all of them are vapid suits. Yeah. And they'll just do whatever they can to just win. And policy is not as, like, secondary to anything that they're doing. Uh, really incredible. I thought it was a really slam dunk finale and got really fucking dark. Like, very Seinfeld-esque. Oh, yeah. It was very, very dark. Um and I mean, actually, they've they've been on the ball for a long time. I mean, they were even mocking um, the idea of blaming uh, a foreign country for a hack of sensitive information that made them look bad. Like before Russiagate even started, like there was an episode like two seasons ago where something leaked showing how they use like, dying children's statistics or something to like get oh, right. votes. And they right. like they could out a cover story saying that China hacked them. Oh, yeah. And then in this finale, she totally embraced China helping her win the election. But it was like mocking the Russia thing, I thought. Yeah, they did. I mean, even that I was like, (laughs) I was hoping that I wouldn't go too far into reinforcing like the real life Russiagate narrative. And I thought it even did a good job of like mocking just the whole that whole thing in in a good way. One more quick thing is that Jonah... said he was like, I just found out that Muslims invented math. (laughs) Yeah. Muslim and at math. the rally, he was like, he was like, math teachers are terrorists. <laughs> and then the anti-vax stuff. Oh, man, it was so, so good. Sadly, it's true. It's all like very uh, reflective of, of what's happening now. I mean, I wish it could just be satirical, but sadly, it's it's pretty on the nose. Yeah. I mean, it manages to be one of the only shows that actually dials into like politics now and manages to still be really funny and smart and not seem generic or behind the curve. I mean, like every other comedy show that I watch that tries to do politics is 
abominable. I mean, it, it's just, it's like they're not even trying. It's fucking terrible. Cringeworthy. I don't even well, want to single of, any of them out because they're all, they really are all bad. I mean, like, oh, I mean, especially if you're going, if they're trying to talk about politics. Yeah. Yeah. Or even that one show that started as a kind of a funny idea being like the new, um, like it was trying to start be like almost like a parody of Infowars that Jordan Kepler guy. Right, right. He he just like did a uh launched his new season, I guess, by letting Hillary and Bill read the Mueller report with him. And it's like, what the fuck oh, is this bullshit, dude? My God. Yeah. Oh I mean, my god. I'm yeah, sorry, he, but even like Broad City, which I thought was like a fairly good show and and really unique, as soon as I, they had Hillary Clinton on, I was like, I don't like this show anymore. Oh yeah, no, I stopped watching it the second I saw that they Can't were attached it, with her. Yeah, dude. And um, the cup, the opposition with Jordan Kepler started off great because yeah, it was like were the real opposition, and I thought that they were going to also critique you know what got us Trump, but no, it was just like oh, we're the real opposition, meaning we're the Democrats. Like we're the we're the full throated opposition where we're gonna like mock Infowars and shit, but then we're still gonna prop up the centrist shills who got us where we are today. Great opposition, dude. Yeah. Pretty so great. yeah, that's really sad. That's really sad because I saw the show got canceled, of course, because it just has no teeth. So yeah, when I saw that it was coming back, I was like, oh, maybe it's like rebranded and they had really read the room this time. But no. But no. Well, Robbie, what do you think about Bill de Blasio jumping in the race? Now we got how many Democrats? What, like 20-something? 20 and change Dems running for the 2020 election earlier than anyone else. Like, I feel like we're now hearing about the election, you know, full two years in advance. And now we have 20-plus Dems running. And Bill de Blasio just jumped in the race. And I think um, what sums it up is this poll that already polled New Yorkers and they said he was their last pick for president. That's how much people like loathe him. And even if they like Out him as 20. mayor, <laughs> yeah, even if they like him as mayor, no, no, it was like actually from New York candidates. So oh, including okay. Christian Gillibrand and like other people who were, um, this was like a couple months ago, like New York figures like Ocasio-Cortez, Christian Gillibrand. And he was like, he, he pulled dead last. And someone from New York won, went around and got man on the streets and everyone was just like laughing hysterically. Like, all ages, all um, demographics, they were like, why the fuck are you doing this? Why are you doing this, dude? Like, <laughs> don't do it. It was insane. And really, why he's doing it is obvious. It's, there's so many goddamn candidates already. The only possible rationale that Bill de Blasio would jump in the race is to split the vote further against Bernie and to somehow, you know, get these super delegates to, to have some sort of runoff decision where they end up picking the candidate. I mean, that's the only thing that I can think of. This is absolutely nonsensical. Do you think there's a, an actual concerted effort being made uh, by the Democrats already to try to get Bernie to, uh, get Bernie to lose votes? I mean, you think this yep, is why there's this many people? A hundred percent. And also why they switched now California is going to have like the first primary. And, and I, and I read some, really in-depth analysis about why all of these things are going to hurt Bernie in the end. Everything that they're doing is to fight Bernie. I am absolutely convinced of that. And that's why, you know, Joe Biden jumps in the race not to run against Trump. He's running against Bernie. Um, and he knows that. And, and he jumps in the race, Robbie, with no policy ideas. He literally has no policy prescriptions. It's like Hillary 2.0, except Hillary 2.0 in a worse way. 
it's like even going back behind Hillary. Um, and I want to go into obviously all the horrible things about Joe Biden. But yeah, I mean, I just wanted to get your take on just Bill de Blasio and just how many, like the sheer number of Democrats that are in this race. It's it's really cartoonish. I don't I don't really understand it. I mean that I I guess that could make sense if they if a lot of these people are trying to split the vote from Bernie. I mean, especially with Joe Biden getting in the race, it's yeah, it's just really interesting the way that they're all everybody's already saying that he's polling the highest. I just find that unbelievable. But Bill de Blasio, the only thing I really remember that he did was like recently, didn't he actually try to pass a law against BDS? He is a full blown apex shill. Yeah. I mean, so just that alone is really crazy because I mean, that's like, I feel like that's what Trump is, is trying to get people to do right now, or he's egging on a climate where they actually just, uh, I don't know if you saw this in Florida, there's a bill that's probably going to pass that makes it not just like illegal to do BDS, but also to like criticize Israel. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So conservatives, you know, can be outraged about free speech um, and act like it's their number one issue. But when it comes to this, they don't ever talk about it. I mean, you'll never see Dave Rubin or any of these like, you know, phony conservative, you know, pundits bring that up. So that's all. Yeah, that's really all I know about him. And I know that a lot of people in New York hated him as mayor. I don't really know why. I mean, conservatives blame him for like bringing back homelessness in New York or something. I mean, that doesn't sound accurate to me, I, but I don't really know much about him. Well, it's funny. I, my whole question is, aren't you mayor? Like you have a goddamn job. So now you're going to stop being mayor and then like jump into this giant race and pour millions of dollars and do like we know what this shit really is. It's your all you're doing is trying to get money. So well, every other so day weird. you're going to be going to campaign events and trying to get money from these giant corporate donors. Think about all the other examples of what you're talking about. I mean, like when a when an incumbent president runs for re-election, they're still president. You know, when Obama was running for president in 2012, how does he split up the duties between like campaigning and actually like doing president his presidential job or yeah. like a senator who runs for president? It's like, how are you having the time to do your senatorial duties? Right. Well, you're all like Ted Cruz. Right. Like, how did he have time to like actually act as a senator and do his job while, I mean, he was like all around the country, like shaking right. hands with people in coffee shops and stuff. I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me. So that's right. a very good no, question. And, and New York is a really important city to run. I'm sure there's a lot of mismanagement going on there. People are saying the subway, you know, needs to be fixed, all of these problems. And, you know, now he's just going to be spending all of his time running for president. Like, what a disgusting egomaniac. Seriously? This is how narcissistic these people are. They honestly all think that they are the smartest people in the entire world. And they all think that, oh, I, I mean, I actually don't think he thinks that he can beat Trump. I think a lot of these people know that they're running to lose. And it's just like... You know, he just wants to he just wants to get his name out there. He's probably tired of being mayor. He wants bigger and better things for himself. He wants a bigger book deal. He wants to go on a you know, he wants to get those morning slots on TV. He wants a reason to be valid and relevant. Um, and it's just really a giant disgrace, because to me, I think that this is a huge, serious thing that Trump is our president. And I guess I thought that people would be. um like getting behind a candidate that was actually viable and saying, okay, like maybe we can put this aside, like our own ego 
aside for once and actually try to beat this guy. But no, that's actually the opposite. Well, I mean, like everyone's jumping generic resistance. People are acting like they're doing that by saying, like, I'm making a pledge to not talk badly about any candidate in the race. Do you see that? Excuse me. This is like totally out of Veep. (laughs) No, I know. Like two weeks ago, it was like George Takai and all these people are spreading around this hashtag. Like, I don't know who I don't know who floated it. Probably like Share Blue or some David Brock or DNC organization of some kind. And it was like specifically when Biden was entering the race, it was like coming off piggybacking on him. It was like, dude, we all know what you're really saying. Just like, don't go after Joe Biden. Don't mention that he smells people's hair. Don't mention that he's fucking nuts and terrible. Like he's the worst. He's literally like the worst possible person you can run. I, I mean, even like you were saying, like Hillary Clinton's more exciting than him. What are they thinking? I mean, it, it does seem like there's somebody who's like, yeah, just let Trump win again. Like, let's put Biden at the top. Fuck it. I mean, should I go, should I go into my little spiel and get your reaction to all of Biden's little, little takes well, here? Well, yeah, I mean, are we talking about, are we going to move to talk about Biden now? Yeah, why not? All right, let's go. Yeah, so basically, like you said, Joe Biden is like Hillary Clinton, except worse. Worse. And I'm not just saying aesthetically... Um, I'm saying he literally is worse. Like his policies are actually worse other than the fact that he's like an old white man, you know, like at least Hillary Clinton was a woman. And I guess Joe Biden is a quote unquote likable. I don't understand what how that's really um, understood by people or even if it's true. I just keep hearing that like he's more likable. I don't know what that means to me. He's detestable. Yeah. Who um, were they? Who's saying that? Like who, who the fuck's putting that out? Right. Right. It's the same people who are putting out, oh, he's going to win because he's polling. He's 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 on top of polls. Well, guess who was on top of the polls at this point in the 2016 election? Jeb Bush. Wow. And we, we know where that went. I mean, this is so, just such a kamikaze fucking crazy thing. Yeah, I can't believe this is what they're doing. Yeah, no, it's insane. It, it is incomprehensible, Robbie. It is incomprehensible. First, let me tell you the polls. Biden is up on Bernie 33 percent to 25 percent. Right. If you're just looking at all these polls and, and this is like taking the headlines across all of mainstream media, like Biden's winning because he's up on polls. If you actually look at what the polls consist of, that's when it becomes interesting, because first of all, they're all landlines. Right. Who has landlines? People who are generally older. Uh-huh. Um, and, and also the youth demographics and like the age demographics of who's poll- who's being polled. The only age demographic that Biden beats Bernie is voters over 50 years old. Voters over 65 choose Biden over Bernie, 52% to 7%. So as you get older and older, Biden gets more and more strong um, in polling. And voters aged 18 to 30 support Bernie over Biden, an astounding 30% lead. So that just shows you kind of how wildly off these polls are that are being shoved in our faces. And also, when did you ever hear that, like, someone's going to win because they're just polling high? Like, the, I mean, other than Hillary, I guess. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it, it's, it just seems like it's a total comical. ploy. Total it's so ploy. comical how we're just being, we're going down a darker repeat of 2016. And everyone just has blinders on still talking about Russia. And no one sees the avalanche that's coming full speed. Um, so let's get into what, you know, who Biden really is, because um, it's really bad. So, you know, when he first announced, 
he announced with that crazy video of, of first of all, Heather Hare getting murdered. I mean, I just have a lot to say about just this specifically because it's really strange to me and just sort of really illustrates a, a, a disconnect um, between, like, the way that the, you know, the left side of the spectrum is sort of presented in the media and the Democratic Party. I mean, just think about this for a second. How weird is it for Biden to launch his campaign um, with a video even just talking about uh, the murder of Heather Hayer? I mean, it just seems odd because it links to Antifa. It directly links to the idea that Trump is a white supremacist. He also, you know, mentions the um, good people on both sides thing. Like to use that as the main point of contention against Trump just seems awfully strange to me because I feel like um, Joe Biden, we already know he's a racist or he's like said racist things on camera, but why would they lean on such a horrific event to launch his campaign? And why would they also, I, I don't know, it just seems really strange to me. Um, because like the generic Democrats have always known and they're smart enough to know that Republicans have dog whistled to racism forever and that Democrats themselves have done that. So there is definitely this new thing where I feel like only because Trump is in office that they're trying to use what they can find is like the most salacious thing against him where they would not have done it before in an election. Like, it is almost like one step away from saying that Trump is a Nazi. And I just find it strange that Joe Biden would, this would be his opening salvo coming out for his campaign. Like, is he trying to appeal to more radical-minded people on the left who think Trump no, is a No, I, I have a theory about this. I think that the whole announcement encapsulates why the Democrats hate Trump the most is because he made policies that they have endorsed for decades and that they stand behind um, 100%. He made them unpalatable and he made it like more in your face. The kind of emerging threat of like fascism and neo-Nazism. We already know that Joe Biden's perfectly fine with neo-Nazism rising around the world. In fact, he was instrumental in the Ukraine coup um, where Nazis are, have a huge stronghold now in that country. In fact, his son Hunter took a board of directors position in Ukraine's uh, top oil and gas provider when that regime fell. So we know that these people don't care about far right insurgencies everywhere. But when it comes to like in this country, that was just like a, a scene that became too unhinged for them, where like Trump removed the mask a little too much, where he said there's good people on both sides. They were like, that actually went too far. The rhetoric went too far. And so he's actually appealing to liberals with that by saying, we all hated when Trump like made us all look so bad because he said there was good people on both sides. So that that's where I feel like he's coming from. He's definitely not trying to appeal to radical leftists or Antifa. I think he's appealing to like the liberals who were like aghast with the fact that Trump said something so abhorrent about neo-Nazism. But I yeah, I mean, he actually everything that he's done and said beyond that has been like actually attacking the left. Joe Biden. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it just seems I I just don't understand the strategy of like who he's trying to appeal to. Like, is he trying to get Bernie voters? I mean, I'm almost trying to imagine if Hillary would have done a campaign ad like that, and I guess she she probably would have. It seems like something that that same those same type of people 
who would have been managing Hillary's campaign would have come up with. Yeah, because then you could just be like, look at the other guy. Like, that's what it is. He's yeah, just looking totally. at Trump and he's like, look at this. He's like, I'm not going to be like this. No, and, it's, and it. it also gives him an excuse to not have to attack Trump on like something of substance in a real way. Like, like for example, like immigration. Because I feel exactly. like even Joe Biden wouldn't, he would, what would he say? Because like the Democrats' right. policies are not that different. It's just the rhetoric that's different. It's like, so if you're arguing about the rhetoric, yeah, that's one thing, but you can't really make like a campaign about how Trump's rhetoric is like too extreme. Exactly. It comes down that's, to policy ultimately. You just hit it on the head. There's no policy shift. It's just, I wouldn't say these things. Vote for me. Pr- pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. And I mean, if, if no Biden f- was in office mm-hmm. before, if this had happened under the Obama administration, I feel like Biden wouldn't have said anything about it. I mean, I don't even know if Obama would have, if like a Heather Hare type incident happened, just at a random street protest before. Right. right. It's it's like, because we're in this cultural moment where they're trying to think of any ammunition, you know, against Trump that they could possibly think of, that they would latch onto this. I mean... But like you just said, yeah, like what policy things could they actually use against him and seem superior? Absolutely nothing. And I'll get into how. So when he first launched his campaign, he immediately, uh, the first fundraising event he had was in Philadelphia at the home of Comcast executive David Cohen. I'm reading from CNBC right now which was estimated to bring in just over $500,000. Then the next fundraiser he had was in Hollywood, where he raked in $700,000, and that included all these, like, Hollywood, you know, tech luminaries, DreamWorks co-founder, president of CBS. So it's just, like, total Hillary Clinton shit, 100%, immediately. Like, totally bad optics, too, frankly. You know, you're running against, like it or not, someone who uses populist rhetoric and who actually has a large, um, you know, contingent of white voters tricked with popul- with fake populism. And if you're just immediately going down the same crazy path that Hillary did, getting like huge, like corporate executive donors to back your campaign and proudly, you know, like not embarrassed whatsoever. Here's what he said at this fundraising event, quote, I promise you, if we elect a Democrat this time, I predict to you whether it's me or someone else, but I guarantee you if it's me, what's going to happen is we're going to see this country come together like it hasn't in a long time, Biden said, quote, because people are tired. They're sick and tired of what's happening. Let's lift our heads up again. Not a joke. Remember who the hell we are and let's go take it back. Have you ever heard of something more uninspiring and like bland and not like what is he even talking about? I can hear his voice as you're saying it, and it's just like nails on a chalkboard, like, like wheezing, like fake, <laughs> triumphant, like forced, you know, like he's just like an old guy running out of steam. I, I could understand, and no, it wasn't a clever, it was one of Trump's worst names yet, but he called him Sleepy Biden. I mean, that's yeah, that's our, I mean, yeah, he, he literally is on video, caught on video, like multiple times falling asleep in public. I use those those clips in a very heavy agenda. There's even clips I use in a very heavy agenda where he's doing speeches where to me he seems drugged. And I don't mm-hmm. I don't just say that hyperbolically like I've made I've said before that Marco Rubio seemed like he was on speed during the, you know, during all the hand comments that he made about Trump. You know, I don't know if that's true. I was mostly just joking around. 
But this, I'm actually serious. There are clips of Biden talking about Ukraine and Russia from the end of the Obama administration where he seems like he's on a sedative. Like he seems like he's about to fall asleep. It's very odd. And also his plastic surgery looks really, really like obvious. <laughs> yeah, he's looking more like Nancy Pelosi every day. Yeah, I mean, I don't even, I mean, would he really have looked that bad if he just let him, you know, not gotten a facelift like that? Like, I don't think so. And let's get that out of the way. The fact that he has, you know, decades of like, I guess, swearing in. Was he, why? Because he was like the head of the Senate Judiciary Committee. I don't know why he was swearing in people, but like all of those clips that people have compiled, very disturbing montages of him. Yeah. Um, you know, rubbing little girls' faces, kissing them right on the ear, um, literally touching the, like, chest of a little tiny girl. He, like, pats her boobs. Yeah. And the tone deafness of his posturing about it, like, the fact that, you know, people accused him of touching them inappropriately, not just children and on video that you can watch yourself, but also these women who came out and really accused him of pretty much the same thing Al Franken was accused of. And instead of resigning, like Al Franken did, he just he just mocked it. You know, at one of his first campaign events, he was just like, trust me, guys, she gave me permission to touch her this time. Yeah. That was I mean, how nuts. insane well, are you? Well, he did it to a child. Yeah, no, he was like a, a little boy. He like said he made me? that joke to a crowd after he like walked a little boy out with him on stage. I don't even remember what kind of event it was. Elementary school student. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Oh, Dude, how is this real? Do you remember how, how then, during <laughs> the campaign too, like um, when Trump was running for, or not even when Trump was running for office, I think it was when he already became president, Joe Biden like made several remarks about how he's going to take Trump to like the back of the gymnasium and like beat him up or something. You remember oh, that? Oh no. He said, if this was, if this was like the 19, if I was a young man, I would take Trump to the side of the woodshed and. Teach him a thing or two or something. Like, we, he would say weird shit like that occasionally. I would take him to the woodshed. If, the, if I was a young strapping man in the late 1800s, <laughs> like, what is he talking about? Really odd. My God. And then, I mean, not to mention the Anita Hill thing where he didn't, you know, he even says to this day, he's like, I didn't hurt Anita Hill. He's yeah. like, I'm sorry that she was hurt. So as he was the head of the Senate Judiciary Committee, apparently he's the one who blocked you know, Anita Hill was testifying against Clarence Thomas, kind of exactly the same as Kavanaugh and, and Blase Ford. Blase Ford was testifying about how Kavanaugh tried to rape her. And Joe Biden was the guy who was like, made the decision to not call the witnesses. And so he actually blocked witnesses that corroborated Anita Hill's testimony. And so he essentially got Clarence Thomas passed through the Supreme Court. And instead of apologizing to her, even after the Me Too stuff, and probably when he knew he was going to run, he didn't even try to reach out to her or apologize for this. And instead just like made this kind of um, cursory attempt to just be like, yeah, I'm sorry that she was hurt. I'm sorry that she felt attacked by people who use that to like attack her. But I had nothing to do with that. And, you know, speaking of just like women's rights and stuff, you know, here in 2019, we need someone who is unabashed. You know, Bernie Sanders just tweeted the other day that abortion is a constitutional right. I mean, sound the applause. That is exactly the kind of mentality that we need to be having right now. You know, I mean, how many decades after Roe v. Wade, there's so many states that have also that have already made abortion pretty much nullified 
Um, and then we have this crazy Alabama abortion bill that bans abortion effectively after six weeks of pregnancy, which really just means your period is two weeks late. No exceptions for rape or incest. And this is the effective outcome of having all these crazy evangelical judges that Trump has appointed all across the state legislatures that are going to be in um, these cabinet positions for decades. And this is all because of the Democrats just allowing this all to happen. They're not standing up for any of this. In fact, we don't even hear the media talking about all these judges who literally believe in the Bible, who are like appointed by the Federalist Society. So anyway, where is Joe Biden's stance on abortion? Well, in 1974, and yes, you can argue that this was a long time ago. The problem is this was when uh, when Roe v. Wade was passed. This was like at the height of, you know, the civil rights movement, women's rights. A, a lot of things were moving and shaking. And where was Joe Biden at that time? He was actually saying Roe v. Wade went too far. He gave a candid interview to the Washingtonian. Um, at the time, he was actually like basically like a self-avowed conservative. Does that sound familiar? It's like all these people just blow in the wind. You know, he was a conservative. I guess he was still Democrat by name. But like, come on, let's face it. He was always like basically a Republican. Among many topics covered in this interview is his views on abortion in general. Roe v. Wade specifically, he says of the court decision that happened two years prior in 1972, Biden say it went too far. He said, I don't like the Supreme Court decision on abortion. I think it went too far. Ready for this? I don't think that a woman has the sole right to say what should happen to her body. Wow, that's kidding me? So yeah. back then and, there and was like a position that like um, the the man and the woman had to make the decision together. Like that was dude, the only way it would be legal. And if people are listening to this thinking, okay, you're being unfair. That was a long time ago. Well, guess what? Last year, last year, Joe Biden got paid $200,000. Let me repeat that. Joe Biden got paid last year $200,000 to campaign for an anti-abortion Republican in Michigan named Fred Upton, and he fucking won. He won in part because of Joe Biden's glowing endorsement and like, like very active campaigning for this guy. So he doesn't care about a woman's right to choose. He hasn't learned, even though it was 60 years ago. He clearly doesn't care. Otherwise, he would be out, up in arms about all of these judges, about the Alabama abortion bill, you know, and about Kavanaugh, who basically is is in there to overthrow Roe v. Wade. It's unbelievable. Um, and let's move on. Let's move on to his uh, his stance on on single payer, single payer health care. Here he is clearly in the race to try to beat Bernie, right? Bernie has extremely lucid, clear positions on single-payer healthcare, on climate change, on canceling student debt, any issue, you name it, and he has a really comprehensive policy prescription for that. That is absolutely progressive as hell. Joe Biden has literally no policy ever. Like, people, people are asking him at these events, and he has nothing to say. In one event answer, he was like, oh, it's rain. I'm rained out. I'll get back to you on this one like asking about climate change or something. I mean, you would think that when you jump in the race, you have at least canned answers for the main policies that Bernie is, is touting, right? But That's no, he doesn't think, even have yeah. that. He doesn't even, ha he doesn't even care, just like Hillary. They are not even trying. On one thing, he said, the vast majority of people are satisfied with their own healthcare system today. That was his answer about like, are you gonna support single payer? That was his answer. Well, the vast majority wow. of people are, are satisfied. 
another answer when someone was like, what do you say about single payer? You know, all these candidates are running on single payer being their issue. What is your response to that? And he just ran. I've never heard a more rambly, nonsensical answer. He, he just like kind of rambled around and then he was like, well, let's not let private insurers off the hook. It's like, what are you talking about, Joe? Um, and this is all about like, we want to work together with Republicans, just like Hillary, trying to appeal to the moderate Republican or actually just straight up Republican vote. He's actually thinks that he can get in there and steal votes from Trump. They again, abandon the left, abandon all the Bernie people. They're just going straight for Republican votes. He says... He says, um, once President Trump's out of office, he was like, Republicans will have an epiphany because I will win. You know, once he wins and Trump's out, Republicans are going to all of a sudden want to work with Democrats. Is that honestly what these people think? Holy shit. It, this is what he's saying here. Um, so let's move on to, to climate change. I mean, he says that he wants a middle ground approach. You know, here this comes on the heels of this crazy report that says like millions of species are on the verge of dying off from cataclysmic climate change, completely changing the entire world as we know it. What is his response? We want a middle ground. We want to work with Republicans on this. Otherwise, nothing will get done. He says he hopes to appeal to both environmentalists, Robbie, and his blue collar voters who elected Donald Trump, carving out a middle ground approach that will likely face heavy resistance from green activists. I'm reading from Reuters. Um, and he basically says this is all he wants to do. He just wants to roll back the rollbacks that Trump did. So I guess Trump gets in and, and rolled back like 70 Obama era, very milquetoast climate rules and initiatives. He's just going to he's just going to reinstate those because we know those went far enough. And compare this to half of the field of Democratic contenders, including Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Beto O'Rourke, Cory Booker, Jay and Slee. I don't even know who the hell that is. Pete Buttigieg. They have all backed the Green New Deal. And many of them have also called for a moratorium on drilling. That is incredible to me that like he is actually running to the extreme right of those people. All of those people. Stunning, isn't it? Stunning. And here I'm just going to keep going with this. Um, it's really shocking, Robbie, because let's face it. I mean, Obama picked Biden specifically to pander to Republicans. Um, he's being rolled out to lead us through the slow, painful repeat of 2016. And they don't even have to try because Americans are this deeply brainwashed. I mean, they think that Bernie's radical. Bernie's just calling for the policies that FDR did 100 years ago. That can only be considered radical in a country that's steeped so far in historical ignorance they don't understand that like every last vestige of democratic institutions were eroded by the corporate state a long time ago. Like, how could we even accept this attempt to do this to us again? And let me just prove that point, Robbie. People, he's basically just floating on the popularity of Obama still thinking that that's going to get him in the White House. Well, let's go back to the 2008 campaign of what Biden actually said to Obama and in front of Obama on these debate stages. This is really shocking. I don't Did know if you've seen boy? this. Um, pretty much. Wait, he can I just said, say really quick before you yeah. go into that? I yeah. just was realizing while you were talking that this, you know, Trump has a bigger advantage. You know, everybody's like, oh, his policies have shaped out and no one's going to want to like vote him back in office. He's shown his true colors. I think that's all, you know, maybe some of that is true. But I think one of the things people are ignoring here is that all of these 
oligarchs and these big billionaire donors and corporations that were uncertain and unsure about him before carrying out their agenda, now they understand and know that he will very much benefit them in a way that maybe they were like kind of leery about before. So I think that that gives Trump a huge advantage going into this election. So maybe that's maybe part of what Joe Biden is trying to do is he's trying to show those people that there's still a Democrat, you know, out there who can carry out that agenda as well. I don't know. Absolutely. And I think that we're also missing the huge point that this is not about people voting for a candidate they believe in at this point. Like a lot of politics now is the anti-politics. You vote against people that you hate. And who do people hate? Who represents the entrenched establishment? Joe Biden, dude. Hillary Clinton 2.0. The, the same people who hated Hillary Clinton to the point where they would actually vote for Trump because they hated her so much will do the same thing if Joe Biden is the nominee. Um, of course. I mean, it, you know what I mean? Yeah. And there's even less enthusiasm for Joe Biden. It's like at least Hillary Clinton, as bad as she was and as unenthusiastic as people who are actually progressive felt about her, they were like Democrats who were like acting and, you know, at least pretending to be enthusiastic about her. I just don't see anything even remotely close to that with Biden. It just seems like a total kamikaze move. Maybe he's a plant. Maybe like, <laughs> I mean, maybe he's not. I mean, we also have to ask the question, how many of these fucking people are running with the serious intention to win the primary? There's so many of them that there has to be a percentage of them that are just doing this for the publicity or doing this because they've been put up to it. Which one is Biden? Which category does he fall into? I just I mean, can't even see him winning the primary. I, I don't know. I don't understand it. Well, wait till you hear this. And I'm reading this from the Daily Wire because... Of course, right-wing media is like the only media that's really put this together, but it's absolutely true. I watched the video. On the debate stage alongside Hillary and Barack Obama in 2008, Biden bragged about spending his entire summer trying to convince black men to wear condoms. Oh, my God. That was on the debate stage with them? He oh, scolded the man. community for being, quote, that was in like denial. No, dude. In denial about AIDS. Praised Obama for getting an AIDS test. Quote, I spent last summer going through the black sections of my town, holding rallies in parks, trying to get black men to understand it's not unmanly to wear condoms. Yikes. Getting women to understand they can say no. Getting people in the position where testing matters. Then he says this. He says, I got tested for AIDS. I know Barack got tested for AIDS. He looks at Obama. He says, there's no shame in being tested for AIDS. And then he gestures to him. He says, it's an important thing. He said, the fact of the matter, the community, the community is engaged in the community. They're engaged in denial. And he says, and we don't have enough leaders in the community, meaning the black community, confronting the men in the community, as well as the women, letting them know there are alternatives. And then going back to 2007, Robbie, he praised Obama for being a black man who's, quote, I mean, you've got the first sort of mainstream African-American who's articulate and bright and clean and nice looking guy. I mean, that's a storybook, man. Like, are you fucking kidding me? It's just insane how tone deaf and bad he is. I mean, did you hear the clip of him talking to some Indian guy at an airport about how if you walk into any 7-Eleven and Dunkin' Donuts that people working there have to have an Indian accent? Pardon me? Yeah. 
Like from like 2009 or something. Like, I know. Well, I'm not even going to get into the crime bill. I mean, he did this <laughs> monumental crime bill in 1994 that essentially put the blueprint for like the surge in mass incarceration. Stunning video of him arguing side by side with Bernie Sanders at the time where Bernie Sanders is just like, this is disgusting and criminal. How dare you do this? And Joe Biden's arguing with him about why it's good. Oh, in on and, the Senate floor. Yeah, dude. And, and mass incarceration just skyrocketed after that. And he's proud of that. And let's just get this out of the way. His foreign policy is abominable. It's actually worse than Clinton's because he was around the Senate longer. He actually is a more rampant Zionist than her. He is completely on the same page ideologically, like a rampant imperialist, bloodthirsty interventionist. Um, they both enthusiastically supported the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And he really quick wanted to mention. Yeah. But do you remember the, how he was on the morning of 9-11 having breakfast with that Pakistani ISI general that apparently oh, wire there? transferred one hundred thousand dollars to Muhammad Atta? No, I didn't. I didn't just a ran, totally random thing. I just remembered. But go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, maybe now that I'm reading this, I don't I don't know if he's worse than Clinton, because, of course, she was in a, like a higher position of power to carry out. Yeah. Horrific policies that actually like created a failed state in Libya. Yeah. But vice I think that Biden kind of a neutered. Yeah. It's hard to tell what a vice, you know, what yeah. policy. Right. So it's like, I don't know what Biden's role was in Obama's foreign policy, but uh, yeah. So it's hard to tell. But we do know that he was enthusiastically behind all of the worst foreign policy decisions of the last two decades. That That's is 100% true, yeah. accurate. One, one thing I wanted to just say really quick on that is that I've, when I was, doing a breakdown for a very heavy agenda for sort of putting together the outline. I tried to make a chart on what, how the foreign policy mindset differed in the Obama administration and like what teams there were. And there seemed to be like team Hillary, team Obama. And I couldn't quite tell where Biden was in the mix. And it did just, to me, it doesn't, it didn't seem like he was the driver of it, but he would latch on to certain things, especially like Ukraine, and really push that. But like he would never seem to be like in the driver's seat, uh, and he just always seemed to be, but a cheerleader for the things the different foreign policy actions the administration would do. But it seemed like people like Samantha Powers, Ben Rhodes, um, and Hillary, and some of her people like Victoria Newland, maybe even had more influence on the foreign policy actions right. of the administration um which is strange you know i mean it's hard it really is actually hard to tell what he would do if he had the power to be president i think he would just be a total puppet is my right. that would that's kind of my impression he would probably the, just let his foreign policy be completely taken over exactly almost like a joe lieberman like s mm -hmm. kind of like hawk democrat i mean that's how i remember him running in the primary against obama was he was like the hawk Democrat running in the race. That's why it made so much guy. sense for Obama to pick him because exactly. he made it like palatable for white people to vote for him, essentially. Exactly. Yeah. And um, and, you know, just again about Bernie, I, I found this clip. Well, I didn't find it. Sean King tweeted this clip of Bernie in 1990. Like literally you could cut and paste it and it would sound exactly like what he says today. And I think that's the difference when you're looking at Bernie compared to any of these other candidates, as much as I do like some of the things that Tulsi Gabbard and Elizabeth Warren say about some things. Bernie does have this like 30 year track record of fighting for the exact same things. And in this clip, and I, again, I have huge problems with Bernie. He is an imperialist. Of course, I know that. Um, 
as foreign I, policies I, are gonna would require like an entire. Po- I think if he wins the primary, I think we almost like owe it to people to do a whole podcast on how well, of course, but how that's, mixed. But look, Dennis, because it's like when did we ever have this crazy? Like I, I I said something about Bernie and just how wow it's really cool that he has this thirty year track record of fighting for the same political message that we're trying yeah. to call for today, which is removing corporate power, yeah, his domestic installing stuff. a people's revolution, domestic. It's consistent but he even says in the clip, he says we need a revolution. He said I'm not going to change it. No one in Congress is going to change it. He said what's going to change it is you guys getting in the streets, forcing all of this shit to happen. Who else says that? Of course we're going to push him from the left on every absolutely every angle there's not one person who's saying what i want them to be saying in terms of ending the u.s empire other than maybe mike gravel that's not the point the point is that bernie for 30 years has been saying we need like a political revolution and congress isn't going to bring it no one else is saying that everyone else is saying i will bring the change that's that's the difference here but yeah of course i have problems with him i had problems with dennis kucinich i had problems with ron paul but i still supported parts of their political messaging because I felt like they meant well. Do you know what I mean? I mean, you I can feel tell. like you can size up Bernie. And even though he said, you know, things that have made me cringe about like right. Russia and his foreign policy right. stuff, especially, I feel like he's authentic in the regard, a lot of his like domestic policy proposals. Like I, I feel that he is. Um, and yeah, I feel that I felt that Dennis Kucinich was, I mean, I feel mm-hmm. even though Ron Paul is, really hard right on a lot of issues i still felt that he was more authentic and coming from a a place of like morality on foreign policy compared to like almost any other politician which That's is weird to say but no i mean it's it's weird but it's also not because i think that at, at this point we have a good judge of character and we've been through these cycles enough this dog and pony show political system that we understand the game by now and there's very few people that you can really say mean well you know as much as i like a couple things elizabeth warren says good god she just had the most shit take on the military um like juxtaposing it with climate change she's like basically just did this whole tweet thread about how we need to greenwash our military because climate change is gonna undermine their mission robbie as climate change gets worse it's gonna deter their ability to operate in the face of floods droughts wildfires it's like wow this is a really bad take Woke imperialism is not going to solve climate change. So, yeah, that was really bizarre. So, you know, everyone has their problems and um, no one's perfect. But, yeah, there are certain people that I I at least think would really make an impact and, and would try to do things. And it's just incomprehensible to me that people don't understand how necessary it is to have healthcare for all and to cancel student debt. Yeah, and when I saw, I mean, just... Some Elizabeth Warren bashing is a little more. Is when I saw her talk about that, I was like, "Oh, dude, she's totally trying to get Bernie's voters." Like, it, it just was like so late in the game when she suggested that policy proposal about mm-hmm. absolving student debt. Um. So, but it'll be interesting to see how many people try if Bernie maintained his popular position, which I think that he will. You know, this this Biden polling aside, I think that what it'll be interesting to see what other candidates in the race try to like match his level of you know Mm -hmm. like leftism basically right on those kind of things so that'll be good well that i think that him his popularity alone has really caused like i mentioned before all those you know quote-unquote progressive candidates to embrace socialized medicine i mean that is completely unheard of and really 
like a big shift and and that's because of him um but i on a kind of a sad side note i was talking to chris hedges i just interviewed him in new york and i was like what do you think is going to happen he said the exact same thing he was like there's no way in hell that they're going to allow bernie to win the primary and he was like it's really sad that he's like allowing himself again to be the sheepdog legitimizing the the democratic party so that's where chris hedges head is at um i think that like Obrador in Mexico, the only way that this is going to happen is if like huge, massive amounts of people come out to vote. But when you're in a country where half of the voting contingent of the population doesn't vote like on purpose because they hate the political system, I don't know what's going to happen. And I don't you know, it's hard to get that enthusiasm behind anyone when you kind of foresee like where it's all going. Well, let's get into this Iran, Iran war buildup, because I'm kind of getting whiplash with Trump's he's he's all on board with this coup in Venezuela. It's now four months in the making trying to install this puppet Juan Guaido. We're going to do a whole ep- episode about the Venezuela embassy collective with Anya Parampil, journalist who was there living there for 10 days uh, with the activists who were holding down the fort. And we'll get more into that coup in the next episode of Media Roots Radio. But, you know, at the same time, Robbie, Trump is um trying to foment war against iran and you know you have all these kind of shit takes calling by uh, calling bolton this architect and this mastermind behind the war with iran and look we all have to face the fact that trump himself campaigned on warmongering against iran he campaigned on abolishing the iran nuclear deal he campaigned on literally going to war with iran saying several times we're going to blow them out of the water I mean, just genocidal rhetoric here. And we know how much he hates Iran, and that's exactly precisely why he picked someone like a John Bolton to lead and be his main foreign policy advisor. He wouldn't have picked John Bolton to articulate his crazy-ass views if he didn't like John Bolton's views and didn't agree with his views. I think that he sees someone like John Bolton as someone who's able to articulate what he wants pretty lucidly. He sees him on TV, he sees him on Fox News, and he was like, I like that guy. He's going to be able to explain what I want and, and my policies on Iran. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. But for some reason, you have everyone from democracy now to kind of all these like progressive leaning outlets, even kind of absolving Trump again and saying, John Bolton, it's John Bolton's world. Trump's just living in it. Yeah, there's all these there's all these weird narratives. And I I wonder if it's strategically put out by the Trump administration by design somehow to get people to p- talk about things in this way. And I'll just give you one example as to why I think that. There was a recent headline by Reuters saying that that the Trump administration, or that Bolton's saber-rattling with Iran or like belligerence towards Iran has like scared Iran and put them like on edge, but they're counting on the fact that they can like appeal to like Trump's unwillingness or like like not wanting to do this. And I read the article and there didn't seem to be like anything really, any quotes from any Iranian officials. It was mostly just like based on leaks or something. But it's strange that if that's actually true, if the Iranian officials like think that there's like a dynamic of like good cop, bad cop, then that benefits the Trump administration. So this big stick approach thing, just the idea that Trump could have this attack dog and still actually have the media portray him as like being hesitant to go to war and then Bolton's the one trying to like push him into war. It's a very useful 
dynamic even for like geopolitical affairs. It could create like a bad cop, good cop, like fake back and forth. Like he could maybe send Bolton to talk to someone and then Bolton could act really belligerent towards them. And then, you know, and then they're, they just want to talk to Trump directly and then he'll tell them something different. I mean, I don't really know what actually is going on behind the scenes, but it is strange the way that, like you're saying, all these media outlets, including Democracy Now!, including a lot of progressive outlets are just saying this is all Bolton and he's the one being belligerent and he's pushing Trump into war and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's like the number one thing that they're basing this on is is baseless isolationist rhetoric of like criticism of the Iraq war during the campaign. I mean, as I've articulated and investigated because of the lack of investigation into Trump's foreign policy, it, it's the complete opposite of anti-interventionism. He has ramped up Troop levels, the, the quote-unquote troop drawl was simply troops that he himself added, at the yeah. same time expanding the criminal occupation of Iraq, at the same time doubling civilian casualties, quadrupling drone strikes. The list goes on and on. But, but my question is, yeah, his heavy criticism of the Iraq war gained him points that people are still somehow holding on to, including progressives. Why did he personally appoint the main architect to the same war as his national security advisor? Because, Abby, it's big stick. He's just trying to threaten other countries, and he's not really going to follow through on it. I mean, that it does seem like a lot of people kind of maybe even think in that framework. No, it's totally ridiculous. I mean, you would think that as soon as he appointed John Bolton, everybody would be like, oh, okay, all the stuff yeah, he right. was saying about being anti-intervention right. is totally fake. But right. instead, the narrative persists even as he's trying to make war with Venezuela and Iran at the same time. It still right. persists. It's all John Bolton's fault. It's all Mike Pompeo's fault. I saw maybe about a dozen tweets from different progressives and leftists calling it Pompeo and Bolton's coup. You know, this is all Pompeo and Bolton. They're going to own this, you know, quagmire if they do this in Iran. I mean, talking about Venezuela and Iran, and it's just right. like, what happened to Trump? I don't remember the same people talking about things done under the Obama administration as only done by Hillary or Victoria Newland. Obama, once the Ukraine coup happened and there was U.S. involvement, Obama owned Yeah, Obama that. owned the shit out of that, He dude. owned the Ukraine coup. And guess what? A lot of, like, adversarial anti-imperialist media correctly identified that, that this was the Obama administration and U.S. government meddling in Ukraine. Um, they didn't say that uh, it was Hillary or it was, like, Victoria Newland by herself doing it. And, and Obama was arguably more of a puppet. I mean, he was a freshman senator. Exactly. He essentially had no political history. Like Trump has been weaving in and out of the political arena as like donors and operatives for decades as this mogul. And what this rhetoric does is gets Trump and his far right base off the hook because they continue to pat themselves on the back being like, it's not Trump, it's Bolton. It's the deep state, Robbie. Anyone who is astute and who's following like neoconservatism like you have been so rigorously understands that Bolton is, is a functionary for a neoconservative ideology, for a political movement that is represented by, you know, right wing billionaires, the defense industry. He's not even just like some isolated guy. It's not like, oh, Bolton's wanted war with Iran since he was born. It's like Bolton is representing a class interest that's represented by like an entire industry yeah bolton is the representative for other people um but yeah it's it's so bizarre it is so bizarre that this just keeps getting trump off the hook he didn't want this coup in venezuela robbie 
It was Bolton who wanted the coup. Um, well, it seems weird that he wouldn't just fire Bolton like he does everyone else that he has a small problem with. Or there were leaks Instead, coming out claiming that he was going thinking about it. Like, and then and then what did he tweet right after? He that? tweeted. He tweeted. He cleared up the fact that all of this is being done with his approval. He said the fake news, Washington Post, and even more fake New York Times are writing stories that there's infighting with respect to my strong policy in the Middle East. There's no infighting whatsoever. Different opinions are expressed, and I make a decisive and final decision. It's a simple process. I'm sure that Iran will want to talk soon. And and look no further to that guy being like, President, are we going to war with Iran? And he was like, hope not. Yeah. like, maybe. Yeah. Oh, he said he said something even weirder. Um, I was trying to find the video earlier, and I couldn't find it again. So the New York Times, um, I think it was about four or five days ago, leaked a report that the Trump administration was working up plans to send 120,000 troops to the Middle East to prepare for an attack in Iran. This actually included no ground force troops for an actual invasion of Iran, because some estimates put that number at over 500,000. That would be needed. So after this leak came out in the New York Times, Trump was asked at like a White House lawn little press presser. Somebody said, is the New York Times report about sending 120,000 troops to Iran? Is that true, Mr. President? Um, are you planning to do that? And Trump said something like, oh, the New York Times, that's, that story came out in the New York Times. We know the New York Times is fake news, but, and believe me, if we did plan to do that, we'd be sending a hell of a lot more troops than that. So it's kind of like a smart, he's still able to spin shit to his advantage. He's mm -hmm. using the fake no, news trope. He's trying to muddy the waters and send out mixed signals. It almost seems like this is the first time I feel like Trump is actually deliberately trying to send out mixed signals and act like simultaneously he doesn't want war with Iran, but that he's like ready to like strike them like really hard, real, real strong, real fast, like at the same time. Well, Trump is a genius. I mean, he he understands how to play the media. If there's nothing else that he's good at, it's that, you know, and, and like deflecting his like worst failures. Like that's how he does it. It's like if th something fails, he'll just blame someone else, but then he'll just double down on the rhetoric and or send mixed signals. So you don't even know like what's going on. Exactly. And that's something I feel like this is the more obvious version of doing that. And it makes me even wonder if some of those leaks about infighting his administration were deliberately put out. I mean, you have mm -hmm. to imagine if the Trump administration has had to deal with this many leaks, like since the beginning, trying to like leak, like damaging shit about them, then on some level, they must be trying to prevent it by putting out like purposeful disinfo to see who's leaking it or even just doing it just to muddy the waters even more or something. They want to have control. So who knows if these stories about infighting are designed to create that, you know, both realities that Trump is not a hawk and that Bolton is pushing him into war and that also Trump is a hawk and wants war with Iran. Like both narratives are useful for him. It's super fascinating. This Iran war buildup really all started with, well, I guess a few different things. I mean, it's hard to say exactly where it started recently. But there was a few incidents which could explain it. The Trump administration obviously, you know, tore up the Iran deal. Um, they put these new demands. They put new sanctions on Iran and then also new demands like saying, like, we will lift and back off on these, you know, further sanctions if you comply with all these demands. And they were like impossible to meet 
ridiculous demands that were by design, you know, made to be impossible to meet. So the Trump administration's already done that. They've already been trying to drum up war rhetoric with Iran. They've even said that Iran had a, a presence in Venezuela, like terrorists had a presence there. Um, they've already tried to say Iran is the biggest exporter of terrorism. We already know Newt Gingrich, John Bolton, and Rudy Giuliani, three people closely associated with the Trump administration, were all paid MEK speakers. If you don't know who MEK is, look them up. This is all sort of instrumental in our attempts to do regime change in Iran. But one of the big incidents that happened was from a couple months ago, and this sort of went under the radar, it was apparently a drone bomb attack happened against soldiers that were working for the Saudi coalition in Yemen by Houthi rebels. And it's there's like a so videotape of it. Is that confirmed? Because I could not believe that that was even real. Well, no, I mean, it's no, I mean, who knows if it's confirmed? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. It, you know, the ad attribution, you know, I have no idea how they figured that out. It seems manufactured to me. There is video of it actually happening, though. So like it really, okay. whatever it was, it did happen. Something I happened. just watched the yeah. video. Um, right. And it's, it's weird as fuck. I mean, just the idea of a drone bomb attack. The last time that happened was against Maduro. It failed um, in Venezuela. It's just strange. Um, and, and it even gets stranger because the main thing that provoked all this recent rhetoric was two things. The first thing being an attack on Saudi oil tankers, um, an alleged attack. If you look at the photographs of these Saudi oil tankers, the damage actually didn't injure or kill any human beings. Um, first of all, so for us to even be like using like this to even be going around the media as like a serious thing is strange already because um, nobody died. Uh, the damage to the ships shown in these photographs looks extremely minor compared to what we've seen before of like the alleged USS coal bombing incident with a giant hole in the side of the ship. This is like a tiny little rip in the side of the ship, and it looks like it really could have been from anything. I don't know if they're saying it's a bomb. I think that is what they're saying, but it doesn't, you know, it lo looks like it could have just hit a rock if you look at the <laughs> pictures. Uh, well. U.S. officials. Um, and the other incident that happened, and this came from apparently Israeli intelligence. So Israeli intelligence is sharing this with the U.S. government, allegedly, that American military officials in Iraq are under threat of an Iranian attack based on this Israeli intelligence intercept. And they claim, Israel claims they intercepted a call between an Iranian commander directing militias to attack U.S. troops in Iraq. And in response to this, both of these incidents, um, like, heightened the tensions or whatever, according to the Trump administration. So the Trump administration responded by quickly sending American personnel out of Iraq, a bunch of American soldiers and personnel, in lieu of these supposed warnings. Um, and this is from... The World Socialist website, it says, quote, sources in Baghdad reported that all day Wednesday, helicopters were ferrying U.S. personnel from the embassy on the Tigris River, the largest such U.S. facility in the world, to a U.S. military base at the Baghdad airport. The last time such an evacuation was ordered was in 2014 after ISIS had captured Mosul, Iraq's second largest city, and appeared poised to march on Baghdad. Um, and so this was... These were the two different incidents that apparently escalated this to the point where the Trump administration sent attack carriers uh, led by the USS Lincoln into the Arabian Sea as a th show of force to Iran. Um, and pulling out all these people, obviously, is like a big deal. It's not 
it's not something just, you know, to be taken lightly. So why are they doing this? Um, is, you know, is any of this based on credible information? It seem I mean, it just seems awfully convenient that this is all happening sort of at once. Um, and all, what's interesting is right out of the gates when it's, when, oh, and I say all happening at once. I mean, this New York Times report that I mentioned earlier about the 120,000 troops leaked just a few days before this Saudi oil tanker attack oh, thing happened. Oh, wow. That's yeah. really weird. Yeah. So That's very suspect for sure. Yeah. So what's interesting is right out of the gates, the New York Times, even in their initial report and subsequent mainstream media reports on CNN, MSNBC, they were all kind of like acting like this would be a really bad idea and that it was based on really flimsy evidence. Um, and I, when I say they were all acting like that, I, I exaggerate that. I just saw certain pundits and like desk reporters, random people, you know, kind of being incredulous towards the Trump administration's information about this, which is a difference between the way the media has treated Venezuela and Syria before this. So I was surprised right, to see that right. right out of the gates. I was kind of like, oh, that's interesting. So at first I was like really concerned that we were on the precipice of war with Iran. But when and I started, we've been concerned about that for a long time. Well, yeah, like, I, I mean, it's been like a Trump slow, got, mm-hmm. we've been on the edge of this for a long time. It's almost like right. we have fatigue from it. Um, mm-hmm. But the mainstream media not going along with it and being lockstep with these war making maneuvers gave me some hope that this something about this is different and it might not actually go off. Um, you know, I would be surprised actually if the Trump administration did it with no mainstream media support whatsoever. Like even if they were right, did it with, right. you know, I would be that would surprise me. Um, so I do feel like that's a hopeful sign here. And well, here's, I mean, this is just an example well, of what I'm talking uh, about. Yeah, um, go ahead. In a really rare move, a British, top British general who happened to be at the Pentagon the day that these personnel were removed from Iraq, uh, speaking to the media, uh, reporters live on camera, he basically completely debunks the allegations that um, there's these new threats to a personnel in Iraq. And the U.S. government had to send out another general to the Pentagon press corps to, like, rebut the British general. So that already shows you that something is not locked up here. They're not getting their story straight. You would think that a British general would be on board with this, or he would just echo the U.S. propaganda. So that's that's interesting. I just wanted to say really quickly that it is interesting that they're using the Saudi attack as somehow trying to foment, like, okay, now we have to do something, because... At this point, everyone hates Saudi Arabia. No one sympathizes with them whatsoever. And also, like, the establishment press is, like, very up in arms about the Khashoggi dismemberment in in the embassy and, like, Trump's non-response to that and stuff. So I find it odd that this provocation would be centered around an attack on this Saudi tanker because it's like, who gives a fuck? Like, would anyone really even care? And, like, how would you rationalize reacting as from the U.S. military because of this. I feel like there would be no support at all, even within the political establishment. It would be very hard to convince people to do that. It's It seems really sloppy and weird, doesn't it, that they're trying to use yeah. that as a provocation. I right. mean, like you said, who, first of all, who gives a flying fuck if Saudi oil tankers were, even if you're like the most conservative person ever? Right, yeah. Like, who would who cares? Even if they're sort of totally true and above board, which, we, first of all, we cannot trust it on its face— but if we took what U.S. officials are saying at face value, do they really think Americans will care at all 
that Saudi oil tankers got fucked around with. So that's odd. Is this, I mean, so you have to wonder, is this really how sloppy the play is to try and drum up support for a strike on Iran? I mean, again, I don't know if this, this is the Trump administration being sloppy or what, but there are some other examples um, of this just not being lockstep and the, the establishment not being on board with it. And I even mean like establishment neocons. Uh, David Frum wrote an editorial saying that it would be a terrible idea to strike Iran. And in the editorial, it's the most arrogant, disgusting bullshit ever. I mean, he's a piece of shit monster who's basically saying that the difference between this and Iraq is that Iraq was justified and, you know, there was a climate of um, of understandable uh, fear after 9-11. We can't let Saddam get weapons or all this, you know, all this bullshit. But mm-hmm. in it, he's basically saying that we shouldn't, the Trump administration shouldn't do this and it's a really bad idea. And it's just strange. I mean, it's it's strange because you know in their hearts the neocons really do want regime change in Iran. And is this just more about you know, them not wanting to get involved in a quagmire. So they'll like latch their names onto something that makes them look bad based on their experience with Iraq. I mean, what is it like? Why would David Frum even write an editorial about this? People like Bill Crystal are being smart. They're just not saying anything because you know think, damn well yeah. that Bill Crystal would, would, well, I you think know, the, the optics that. are so bad, even for neoconservatives who've been vying for war with Iran this whole time. Cause it's just like, it's so random and again, because it's centered around Saudi instead of like the Saudi oil tanker specifically, it's like not even an attack on Saudi Arabia where people died. And yeah, stuff. yeah. It's like so um, beyond the pale of like even the propaganda that would be peddled for humanitarian means or anything, or even like bloodthirsty neoconservative means. It's like totally random, an attack on property. And everyone hates Saudi Arabia, especially like thinks it's disgusting that we have this oil partnership with them. So I feel like even the neocons are like, this is a really bad move, dude. Yeah. Like, let's I mean, do it, but like not this way. I wonder, you know, part of me is wondering who would this outrage the most? It would probably outrage like people in the oil industry <laughs> the most. Because <laughs> they'd be like, God damn it. Now the terrorists are like fucking with our pro- like profits. So it is interesting that that's the play they're going with. Because none of Trump's base, I think Trump's base is mostly smart enough to just not give a shit. Oh my God, yeah. But I mean, if, the, the if he did least... launch an attack mm-hmm. in Iran, they'd go along with it. But I mean, like yeah. the, this rhetoric to try to get us into war with Iran is not going to work. I don't even think on his base. It's So that's what gives me some hope here. And there's also other strange reports coming out that to me are very surprising, more surprising than even David Frum writing an editorial against this that it might be so sloppy that apparently even Netanyahu, according to leaks um, from his inner circle, wouldn't not said he would not directly support any U.S. strikes on Iran. That's really surprising to me. Because we have Netanyahu just a year ago saying that Iran wants to kill 6 million Jews and trying to make it seem like Iran wants to, like, you know, take all the Jews out and kill them all and all this stuff. So, you know, what's really going on here? It's the more I dive into this, the more confusing it gets. Because at first it seemed like, oh yeah, Trump is just saber rattling again. You know, the most annoying part of it was the Bolton, how everything was getting blamed mm-hmm. on Bolton and Trump was being absolved of this. But then now it's just like, what it, what are they actually trying to do? You know, they are, they are turning up the heat. That's obvious. These new sanctions, tearing up the deal. But what is the actual goal here? I mean, Trump 
I do think Trump is egotistical enough where he, it's not that he's anti-intervention or anti-war. I think this is something that I think you and Mike said before is that he's anti like getting us into like a quagmire that makes us look bad. He wants to get right. in there, hit him fast, hit him strong, hit him hard, right. take out as many people as possible without as little damage and blowback to us as possible, politically or whatever else. Right. That's what I mean. If if any of that was true, the leaks coming out of the administration about just him being annoyed mildly at John Bolton because the Venezuela coup wasn't going as planned. Like, yeah, I can see that because he just, you know, like he's pissed that it actually didn't go quickly. It's not that he didn't want the coup. It's that he's he is annoyed that it's taking so long because he he didn't understand the resilience of the Venezuelan people. It's a and prolonged the, affair. I mean, he doesn't yeah. he doesn't want that. Yeah, and he said that in the campaign trail too. He said time and again. He was like, "Let's. We should have gotten their oil. We should have." He was like, "Do you see how fast they put up fucking rigs?" He's like, "We go and just take out their oil tankers and and put up our own." He's like, "Immediately." He's like, "In and out." I mean, it was clear that the only thing that he didn't like about the wars is that they were too long, and that he thought that he could manage them better, just like he thought he could manage the Notre Dame fire by by airlifting water and pouring it on the building, even though the French. Um, fire department was like that would ruin the entire building we obviously thought of that you dumbass so that's just what he thinks he thinks that he can do something better than everyone else and he doesn't understand how you know how these things actually work and like he doesn't assess the countries that he's trying to go to war with properly but i mean wildly inconsistent i mean he also blames obama for pulling out the troops from iraq and creating isis oh yeah no of course on the same time because yeah at the same time he's totally fine with us still being in iraq even though yeah. it's like the like you know second in command of the longest war ever, but I mean the sanctions on Iran, he's upping those like every couple months too, genocidal sanctions that have killed you know forty thousand Venezuelans since August of twenty seventeen. He's doing the same type of sanctions in Iran, trying to just suffocate the population that way. A- aside from all of this going on, it's just stunning what he's doing with sanctions there. Yeah, weren't there just power outages in Venezuela like last month, and then like power outages in Iran? This month, oh, I didn't hear that there were. Wow, I mean, I might, I might be remembering incorrectly, but it seemed like they were trying to send them a message. I mean, you know, there's little things happening here behind the scenes that we need to pay attention to. Also, I mean, that like, why is it that Reuters has a story going right now saying that the Iranian government is hoping that Trump is more reasonable than Bolton and that they can like reason with him or appeal to his you know, anti-war tendencies. I mean, that's just a strange narrative in and of itself. Because if that is, if that's true, like I was saying, then that means a lot of this narrative in general about Bolton being the guy who's behind this mm-hmm. is meant to conveniently serve some kind of purpose here, some negotiating tactic, you know, purpose. So, yeah, exactly. I, but I, I'm, I'm, it's almost giving Trump too much credit at the same time, like he's the art of the deal, you know, deal maker mm-hmm. or something. Right, right. But I don't really know what's going on here. I mean... I, but I do have some hope. Oh, and then actually more hopeful stuff that I didn't even, I don't even think I had a chance to put in the notes here. So I don't even know if you've heard this, Abby, is that Lindsey Graham and Marco Rubio are even complaining that Trump is not keeping them in the loop enough about these threats, these Iran threats. That's hilarious. Lindsey Graham, oh, this is some funny quotes he said. So He's good. like, um, Lindsey Graham's like, no, I feel like we haven't been well informed. And I'm, I'm writing a letter with Senator Leahy today to try to get a briefing. And then he says, I don't think it's fair for us to walk around wondering. And then someone asked him what he thinks about the New York Times leaked story about the 120,000 troops in the Middle East. Graham said, 
I don't know. I just know what I read. <laughs> the president has said it wasn't true. <laughs> <laughs> and then he says, we're clearly moving people. That's a big deal. So he goes on and on. I mean, basically, he's just complaining. Here's uh, what Marco Rubio had to say, a little bit of a lighter touch. He says, my understanding is that there will be a briefing early next week, but I don't know where we'll be going by early next week. I hope I'm wrong. We could be full blown into this thing. It's a much more urgent situation that I think is being reflected. I'm surprised there isn't more talk about it. So he's not really criticizing Trump. He's just sort of acting like this is like a moving, like he's acting like, you know, kind of saber rattling too. And then Tom wow. Cotton on the other side of this is just like, yeah, like we can, we can hit Iran hard and it'll be like a fast, quick and easy war. You know, he's going like full throated endorsement of this plan. Wow. Yeah. Who's like really behind this right now? Um, I think Tom Cotton is. Wow. Um, and Marco Rubio would be seemingly if he had enough information. Uh, you know, he's, he's acting kind of like butthurt that he's not in the loop. Um, it's unclear who has go- who's fully behind this right now. Actually, that's the that's wow. the interesting thing. Eli Lake and Josh Rogan are both writing editorials, kind of making it seem like this is a bad cop, good cop strategy, and that the media is being irresponsible by calling this like a war making maneuver, because what it really is is a deal making maneuver. We should allow Trump to have as much leg room as he wants to like put pressure and heat on Iran because like that's what needs to be done. It's like the Dan Senior quote from A Very Heavy Agenda where he's like, we're not going to attack Iran, but we want Iran to think that we're going to attack them. Like that's the whole mentality. So in a way, this is sort of like a neocon strategic prism to look through. Oh, and another thing that Trump said was fascinating. To me, this really says it all. I mean, it's kind of perfectly goes along the lines of what we're talking about right now is Trump just tweeted yesterday with all the fake and made up news out there, Iran can have no idea what's actually going on. Exclamation mark. Whoa. What does that tell you? I mean, yeah, it's kind of like anything can be happening behind the scenes. The whole strategy of let them just fight amongst themselves. Meanwhile, no one really knows. And he said that during the campaign trail, too. He's like, I'd never let you know what my real plan is. He made fun of Obama, like saying like, oh, here's what I'm going to do. Yeah, (laughs) Like a dopey voice, like voice. Um, Yeah, it's really, really strange. Um, And I make it makes me wonder now if Trump realizes that it's not just to deflect criticism against him, the power of you, you know, using that, oh, that's fake news as a deflection. He can also use it to, to actually like change world events. I mean, it opens up a whole new like world of possibilities for how a politician can do these kind of things. I don't know. It's just, to me, it's fascinating. Right. I mean, wow. I have no idea what to think. Um, so confusing. Mm hmm. And, um, and also, I mean, to the mainstream media's credit, for some reason, maybe because, as you said, this is based off of a Saudi oil tanker getting attacked, <laughs> which we also have to question, why did the media turn against Saudi Arabia so quickly? I mean, I, was it just the Khashoggi thing alone that caused him to do it? I don't know. I still question that. And I still question this. Like, why are they so against this? Well, like, I think it's the same reason why they don't like the good people on both sides thing is because they're like, well, first of all, Khashoggi was one of them. Like he was a Washington Post journalist. And so it hit them close to home. But then they also just wanted some some um, pretend rhetoric that at least pretended like, OK, we're going to just say that we're pissed. And like the fact that Trump didn't even give them that. <laughs> he didn't care at 
all. I think they just I think they just really, really are pissed about that alone. Like, you know, even if the policy didn't change, they just wanted something to just make it seem like Trump gave a shit about the fact that a Washington Post journalist got dismembered in an embassy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that whole thing is still fascinating to me. And just a total side note, but I think this is worth um, mentioning. People should go check out Sebastian Gorka's most recent appearance on C-SPAN, where he does like, he takes calls. Um, I was really surprised by how clever he sounded during the this interview. I mean, just this C-SPAN appearance, where he got calls from people actually ac- asking why Trump is claims to be an anti-interventionist when he's trying to do a coup in Venezuela. And what I was surprised by is Sebastian Gorka had all these like stock responses where he was actually stealing rhetoric from the anti-imperialist left to argue and like concern troll people. And I was like really surprised by it because I never heard anybody in the Trump administration talk this way. And he kept using this phrase, the fake news industrial complex. What? Yeah. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. That is so nuts yeah and then he went on to talk about how khashoggi's murder he he basically made it seem like khashoggi was a mu- part of the muslim brotherhood and was like part of a of muslim course. brotherhood conspiracy and that's why it wasn't that big of a deal that he was murdered of course the whole appearance needs to be watched because i believe that there are people in the trump administration who understand the power of acting anti-interventionist and stealing rhetoric from the left to use to try to just like elevate themselves or just like use what works, use what sticks. Yeah. And, and I think this Sebastian Gorka interview was interesting for that reason. I mean, I think, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if he's still advising the Trump administration. Well, yeah. I mean, they're smart in the sense that they know that pandering to anti-interventionism is, is popular. Like it's something yeah. that works. Bannon understood people that are totally sick. well too. Yeah. Dude, exactly. And that's why Trump used the rhetoric in the campaign trail. It's like, of course people don't, if you're going to just question any average American on the street, like no one's going to agree that we have a military this big and we're squandering all our resources that we're allies with people like Saudi Arabia. So it's like that rhetoric definitely works and they know how to use it to their advantage for sure. They're just smart operators in that sense. Absolutely. I, I've come away from this just not understanding what the Trump administration's play here is. <laughs> yeah. Um. I mean... Maybe Trump wants another photo op. You know, maybe he mm-hmm. wants a photo op with the Iranian president, shaking hands with him again. I mean, I don't know. Maybe he, maybe he is going to try to do his own deal, you know, just because he didn't like Obama. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't put anything past Trump in terms of wanting to do a military strike, but it would surprise me if he did something irresponsible enough to get us involved in like any kind of quagmire with Iran because it'll just blow up in his face. This is why the sanctions matter, though, so much, because they really are war. And when you're killing tens of thousands of people with sanctions like this, like it's just a matter of time before an altercation happens, before there's some sort of provocation that you can rationalize military intervention. Well, yeah, and that's, that's what, what he's we've, doing we've right already now. seen that's the Trump administration yeah. has already cleverly tried to set the pieces in motion, do yeah. that, the caravan. Mm-hmm. I mean, come on. And the, even just saying that um, American dip, like when Maduro said American diplomats need to leave and Trump re- rebutted with, no, they're staying, you know, that was, that was an attempt to get, a, to start a violent provocation. That's all they would have needed if Maduro's forces came in and arrested American diplomats in Venezuela. Man, that's it. That's all they need. Right. Are you kidding yeah, me? Exactly. That video footage, that's fucking outrageous. Right. 
And why do you think they just invaded the Venezuela embassy here? Is because they know that there is just one more step to something happening to the diplomats that are stationed there. Well, that's what I was the whole time I was when I was paying attention that Mm -hmm. I was actually worried that there was going to be some kind of violent violence done in D.C. I mean, right. That's like classic deep state CIA style activity. I mean, that like when they bombed um, what's his face? Oh, yeah. The Chilean. Yeah. Like on Embassy Row car bombing. Mm-hmm. Guy was dismembered mm-hmm. on the ground in fucking Washington, D.C., like in broad daylight. Just wanted to add a quick little update here about the news we've been giving you about the buildup towards potential war with Iran. My assessment at first um, was a little more hopeful than it is now. So I just wanted to make sure before this podcast went out that I didn't sound like I was downplaying the possibility of this um, based on these recent events, um, recent developments that have happened. And I'm just going to go into a little bit some of these recent events and how they are turning the tide of not just the way the media is talking about it, but also the way that other Republicans are talking about it. That consensus that wasn't there when we had recorded the episode seems to be forming quite quickly. And I'll explain. So there was one incident that I forgot to mention um, that was reported on May 16th that Saudi Arabia blamed Iran for a drone strike attack on an oil pipeline. So the Saudi Arabian government claims that Iran launched a drone strike that shut down a key oil pipeline inside Saudi Arabia. It's not actually made clear in this report what pipeline this was. A Saudi newspaper um, that's close to the kingdom said that we should launch surgical strikes on Iran, meaning the United States should. So that was something that came before all this buildup um, that was part of it. Again, they seem to be thinking that generating outrage over Saudi's oil resources being attacked would somehow make anybody want to attack Iran. The only people that would be outraged enough to want to attack Iran based on that are people in the oil industry, people invested in oil companies. But just yesterday, seemingly the provocation that we were fearing uh, would happen happened. U.S. authorities reported that a rocket strike almost hit a U.S. embassy in Iraq. And this is just quite convenient because the United States government already announced they were moving all this personnel from Iraq because of these looming threats from Iran. Seems awfully convenient to me. It's just, it's just strange, strangely convenient that this happened right after uh, no one actually got injured or killed. And according to Washington Examiner, and a bunch of reports coming out right now that were actually previously skeptical about these threat warnings that the U.S. government was putting out about Iran are now not skeptical anymore because now that this rocket apparently hit near a U.S. embassy in Iraq, they're all just moving ahead, moving along as if this is a real thing and that it has Iranian fingerprints on it. This is from the Washington Examiner. From May 19th, it says rocket fired at U.S. Embassy in Iraq, the same model used by Iran. The rocket that exploded Sunday outside the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad is of a design trafficked by Iran and used by Middle Eastern terrorist groups. And I first saw this story with the headline of, didn't say Iran in it, it just used an obscure term that most people who are just peripherally following this wouldn't even know. And it was that the U.S. Embassy... Um, was almost hit by a Katyusha rocket 
they already know that that means it's an Iranian rocket. That's the it's sort of like Novichuk with Russia. It's like, oh my God, Novichuk was used. It had to have been Russia. It's so specific and so convenient that it, it cannot be taken at face value. For all we know, somebody else launched this rocket, you know, launched an Iranian rocket at the CS embassy. And actually, did it even happen? I mean, that's the other thing that I'm unclear on. Um, if nobody was injured or killed, you know, what really happened here? There's reports coming from AP showing, you know, a map about where the rocket apparently fell. And this is also something that happened um, that was reported in some news outlets a few days ago, but it wasn't really confirmed. I didn't see it reported by any big outlets until now. That now Associated Press is actually reporting that employees of, this is a quote from their uh, article from the 19th, that employees of energy giant ExxonMobil have also begun evacuating from an oil field in the southern Iraqi province of Basra. On Sunday, Iraqi oil minister Tamir al-Gabdin said in a statement that he sent a letter to ExxonMobil asking for clarifications over the evacuation, saying the evacuation was because of political tensions in the region and not related to security. Now, at the same time this rocket strike apparently took place, pro-Iran militias, this is according to the Wall Street Journal, denounced the rocket strike near U.S. Embassy in Iraq. It says, hardline pro-Iran militias in Iraq denounced the late-night rocket strike near the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, seeking to distance themselves from an attack that threatens to inflame tensions amid efforts to de-escalate a crisis between Washington and Iran. Now, simply because of this alleged rocket attack which we didn't even really know if it actually took place. The Iraqi foreign minister is claiming that it took place. The U.S. embassy, the people there are saying that it was just an explosion. They're not calling it a rocket attack. They're not saying it was an Iranian rocket. This is all sort of being leaked through the media. So again, we have this interesting effect happen where when Trump somehow develops enough of a consensus, gets the blob enough on his page, um, the mainstream media starts to act as an instrument for his agenda which is unusual because normally the mainstream media is just always trying to tear him down or take something he said and, and make him look like a monster because of it. Um, and he is a monster a lot of the times because of what he says. But this is unusual. This is a different, definitely a difference. Uh, CNN yesterday brought on Foundation for Defense of Democracy think tankers to talk about how we need regime change in Iran. Fox News brought on Institute for the Study of War the Kagan family war think tank. They brought on um, General Jack Keane from the Institute for the Study of War, acting as if he has a line into Trump's inner circle and that he understands um, that the situation is, uh, the plan is actually very clear that the Trump administration has. And he was sort of trying to downplay or reassure the Fox News interviewer that this wasn't rushed, that it was actually very clearly planned out. The Trump administration had a very solid plan here. So things are shifting this consensus that I was talking about that wasn't formed before, it's forming now. And here's just another example before I sign off on this update, is that Lindsey Graham, he tweeted yesterday that he just received a briefing from National Security Advisor Bolton about escalating tensions with Iran. He says it is clear that over the last several weeks, Iran has attacked pipelines and ships and other nations and created threat streams against American interest in Iraq. He continues on with a second tweet. The fault lines with the Iranians. The fault lies with the Iranians, not the United States or any other nation. 
If the Iranian threats against American personnel and interests are activated, we must deliver an overwhelming military response. Stand firm, Mr. President. So this is a huge difference between the quotes I read from you of Lindsey Graham from just a few days ago, where he was acting like he wasn't really on board with this because he wasn't, on the loop, wasn't in the loop and didn't fully understand these threats. Full-throated endorsement of a neocon regime change operation in Iraq. And additionally, uh, Trump is saber-rattling on Twitter more um, about Iran. And now what he's saying is much more militaristic. He said 24 hours ago from recording this update on Twitter, if Iran wants to fight, that will be the official end of Iran. Never threaten the United States again. He could be responding to just rhetoric that's coming out of the Iranian government right now. And one example of that that I'll read to you was actually a funny statement made by someone in the Revolutionary Guard who is now, the Revolutionary Guard has now been deemed a terrorist organization by the United States government officially. So the general's name is Major General Hossein Salami. Um, and he was quoted by a local news agency, Fars. He says, the difference between us and them is that they are afraid of war and don't have the will for it. And then he went on to actually kind of mock the United States over 9-11. I don't know if this was like a 9-11 truth wink and nod kind of jab, but it still was funny. And I'll read to you what he says. He says, the U.S. political system is full of cracks. Though impressive looking, it has osteoporosis. In fact, America's story is like the World Trade Center towers that collapse with a sudden blow. <laughs> I mean, he's not wrong. It is kind of, it's a good analogy. Um, so that's the update right now. And I think that this is actually getting more serious than I previously believed. We should definitely not uh, take these threats lightly. You know, just because there's some stumbling blocks along the way, again, the American empire is an unstoppable train. The U.S. government and the U.S. military have done such heinous things in the past. They're, they're ready to do the craziest shit you can imagine. Um, and I think that we need to take that very seriously. So back to our regularly scheduled broadcast. So the thing I wanted to end today's episode with is this idea that, you know, it appears that one of Trump's main ploys to get reelected in 2020 is to turn the Russiagate investigation in on his opponents or he, who he believes and who all of his base believes are the deep state, you know, witch hunters who came after him for this Russia hoax. Now, there is a lot of validity to the idea that this was a witch hunt and that it was manufactured. Um, we already know, you know, if you believe and put faith in Robert Mueller's investigation, he wasn't able to find any actual collusion or direct coordination between the Trump campaign and Russia or anything like that. But William Barr, the new attorney general, who was responsible for releasing the report, he says, and a lot of GOP Congress people and senators are now saying that they're going to launch an investigation on the people who like spied on the Trump campaign and who started this in the first place, who used false information to get warrants on spying on the Trump campaign. So this is like red meat for Trump's base. And this kind of actually, in a way, goes along with the general vibe of the QAnon narrative that the deep state, quote unquote, deep state would be going to jail. But what does this all really mean? I think it's inaccurate to say that Trump, that these problems for Trump started as a partisan witch hunt. I do think it's accurate to say that in general, what happened to him 
was a was a witch hunt in terms of Russia, but a partisan witch hunt, I think it's it's a it's a lie, and it's purposefully being spun that way because the GOP wants to make people believe, and they want to put out this appearance that they're in lockstep with Trump now, that there's a unified front on the Republican side. They don't want people to remember that it wasn't that long ago where they're actually trying to figure out a way to do a contested convention and to rob Trump of his nomination. That's all, for some reason, forgotten history now, because the GOP wants to appear as this you know, uni- unified front. Lindsey Graham is now best buds with Trump. And this was only maybe six months ago that him and McCain, Lindsey Graham and McCain, were acting like they were two of Trump's biggest enemies. Or not, maybe not Lindsey Graham, but... There was an, a, a point in time where all these like mainstream neocon baited Republicans were acting like Trump was really bad. Now they're pretty much right. all for him. The right. chorus of anger towards him from within the GOP is turned down to such a low volume that you can't even hear it anymore. I mean, yeah, Bill, they, but look, like you said, they know that he will do what they want ultimately. Well, that's like they've become seen. Like it's like they've seen Kavanaugh. They've seen servants, fucking yeah. um, who else did he mm-hmm. appoint? I mean. They've seen his power to push through their, yeah. these crazy agendas that they want. They've seen the way he's moved the needle even just on abortion so far. Right, I mean, right. that's, that's you know, made them really excited. So, And they also know that they need him. Like, they, I think, you know, like the party was in a big crisis before Trump won. Yeah, exactly. Like, we didn't actually know where it was going to go. So even people like Tim Canova are saying that Debbie Wasserman Schultz are the ones responsible, or in the DNC are the ones responsible for starting this Russiagate narrative. That's along the lines of the same false narrative that this is a partisan witch hunt. We know that this, we, we you and I already know that this started before the DNC uh, even t- was talking about Russia and Trump, because we we went back into our old archives and we 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 played back clips of us reacting to neocon editorials from April, and before that, this is before the conventions, this is before the primaries. Right talking about how Trump had all these Russia connections from neocons yeah. like Jamie Kerchick. This narrative was being spun seemingly by the neocon sectors of DC. Like, and, and honestly, this is where a lot of this stuff originates from anyways. Like a lot of these powerful narratives, especially about Russia, let's just hone in on Russia, come from the neocons. I made a whole documentary series about how they were at the tip of the spear pushing this narrative like back before anyone gave a fuck about it. And they eventually got it to stick. They did that. And they got it to stick in terms of they got it, the Democrats to start talking about it. I mean, they got, you know, the neoliberals, the liberal interventionists to start worrying about Magnitsky Act and Ukraine and all this stuff. This idea that it was just the Dems who wanted to stop Trump um, is, is absolutely false. We know that the GOP at one point also wanted to stop him. We know that uh, this idea that if William Barr does a probe and allows the GOP to do these investigations, it's basically going to go right to their own doorstep. If it fully, if, if they do a real full spectrum investigation of how the Steele dossier created this probe and how this started in the first place, it's going to go right back to the neoconservatives and top GOP donors and figures. Um, and I'm basing this off of two different pieces of information. One. Mm-hmm. Is that we already we already know that roundtable discussion of those top GOP donors from the episode of the circus, leading into the primary, they were terrified of Trump getting the nomination, and these were like like five of the top GOP donors and like movers and shakers in the country. That's forgotten history now. 
that they wanted to have a contested convention and they were trying to figure out a way to undermine Trump. And now we know that the top GOP donor, Sheldon Adelson, was wearing a MAGA yarmulke. So that's... Yeah. So there's definitely been a shift. I mean, been a little bit of a sea change. <laughs> also remember that after that APAC appearance that Trump did, he got a lot of people to sort of breathe a sigh of relief that he was actually going to carry out this like pro-Israel yeah, agenda right. too. Um, so that's we already know that there was an enormous amount of pressure coming from within the GOP to stop him. And it's almost like they, like all the people who are advising all the other GOP candidates, got them to just be like kamikazes against Trump, just to try to tarnish him as they like emoliated themselves, especially in the Marco Rubio, like you know, commenting about his his hands. Like, who even got Marco Rubio to say that shit? I mean, that was a total kamikaze move. It seemed designed to get in Trump's head. Going off on a tangent, I'll just get back to the original subject. What we know is that the Republicans are promising and Trump is acting like there's going to be this massive probe to figure mm-hmm. out who did this. And we already know that it's probably, if it was done properly and if full-spectrum investigation was done, it would go back to the GOP and it would show that this was not originated by Democrats. And also, Jim Comey is a Republican. Like, everyone's acting like these are just this Democrat witch hunt partisan coup or whatever. He's a Republican. People forget that people blame, like, were extremely mad at him for announcing that the Hillary Clinton email yeah, probe was, like, right. reopened. Yeah. People blame her that, that for losing her the election. Yeah. So do we really—so this is, this is what I think the Republicans have effectively done. And even people like Chuck Ross and all these supposed, like, great, you know, conservative-leaning journalists who've, like, picked apart the Russiagate hoax— this is what I believe they've done is they've made people believe that this was all sort of directed by Obama and the Democrats coordinating with like the DNC to get people like Jim Coney and Peter Strzok and all these other people to believe this. And then they ultimately like the DNC fed them the Steele dossier. I think there's a, there's a different layer here that really needs to be explored where it's like if there was already like internal GOP pressure leading into the primaries to get Trump dethrone and remove him of the of the um nomination then how do we know people like jim comey and other people in the u.s government weren't influenced by that there doesn't seem to be really any evidence that obama was that involved in this in fact there's actually evidence that obama didn't even really care very much for hillary and didn't really lift a finger for her to win so if he was like super concerned about this like wanting hillary to win and trying to undermine trump and stuff there just doesn't seem to be very much evidence that this was directed by obama there is a possibility here that, you know, this investigation that Barr and the Republicans and Trump are all promising is going to happen. Is this going to be to try to, like, throw Jim Comey against the wall, throw Peter Strozik against the wall, throw these, like, figures that the right wing has concocted in their head or, like, the heads of the deep state coup against Trump and throw all these people against the wall. But this is what I don't think most people realize is that if they actually go after the Steele dossier origins completely— that it will go eventually to Fusion GPS and top GOP donors like Paul Singer. But what you hear now is that Fusion GPS is only discussed as this peripheral issue and this narrow framework that, you know, they were paid by the DNC to create the Steele dossier, and that's the origin of the Steele dossier. Okay, just a little backtracking here. Glenn Simpson, who's the head of Fusion GPS, has been obsessed with this idea that Trump and Russia had some kind of relationship since the 1990s. It's been like some weird pet theory this guy has had. 
So let's just get at that out of the way. He was actually putting out this narrative before anyone else that I know of. He's an obscure player in all this. His name is not very well known. But you have to wonder, why would someone hire Fusion GPS to concoct oppo research on Trump? Did they already know that Glenn Simpson had this theory concocted and that he could sort of flesh it out for them to use as talking points? That's a question worth asking. Because if he was the one, one of the origins of this Trump-Russia idea in the first place since the 1990s, you know, you would think maybe someone might have hired him to flesh that idea out more and put it on paper and try to even hire an intelligence agent maybe to try to concoct stuff surrounding that theory. Um, but you never see that question really being asked. And then also, there's this sort of absolving of the organization, Washington Free Beacon, a neoconservative outlet out of Washington, D.C., uh, funded by Paul Singer. You never see them accused of having anything to do with the Steele dossier, even though they were the ones who hired Fusion GPS before the DNC started paying them. They basically, Glenn Simpson was in charge of the oppo research for Trump. He was hired by the Washington Free Beacon, a neoconservative outlet. And then that project was eventually passed to the DNC under the same leadership of Glenn Simpson. But what's interesting is a lot of these outlets and conservatives have tried to spin it by saying that this has nothing to do with the Steele dossier. It was 100% the DNC's idea to do this. Um, Hillary came up with it. But, I mean, just think about that for a second. How could that even be possible that the DNC came up with that idea on their own to tell Glenn Simpson to go hire Chris Steele? I mean, it just seems unbelievable to me. And what seems more believable to me is that there were people in D.C. who knew about these little connections before, who knew about Glenn Simpson's little theory, who knew about Chris Steele already, and who essentially like were... were coordinating together to eventually create this mem memo, this dossier, and then have the DNC use it to weaponize it. Like, I, I mean, to me, that seems like a more likely scenario. I'm speculating, but I truly believe if this probe was able to conduct itself fully, it would encompass the entire political establishment. And all these Republicans will have to like face up to this lie that they've been telling that this is a partisan witch hunt. So basically what I'm saying is ultimately this cannot actually move forward in a full spectrum way. It'll have to be a narrow investigation. It's going to be their own partisan witch hunt, basically. Right. I mean, that's right. just I mean, what that's, it's going to be. That's why they can't really investigate Trump for anything, because they just implicate themselves every single time. That's why, yeah, it has to be a narrow partisan thing. And uh, that's really, really fascinating, but not surprising. Yeah. Not surprising that this was really a bipartisan effort from the beginning and that they never really intended to, you know, unearth the root of it. And, you know, if the if the rule of law were really in place in the first place, Trump would never have been able to serve since day one. And it's just fascinating that the liberals are still holding on to this notion that the Russiagate investigation in whatever form it's taken now will still somehow lead to the impeachment of Trump. Oh, my God. Yeah. Because of obstruction. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really sad. And we already saw Nancy Pelosi say that it wasn't going to happen, and now she's right. like, oh, maybe it'll happen now. Like, I mean, come on. They're never going to fucking impeach anybody. This is the it's same nuts. House Majority Leader who sat there and scowled at Dennis Kucinich while he bravely read his, like, 19 articles of impeachment for George W. Bush. The only guy with the balls to bother to do that. I mean, the Democrats, yeah. if you want to see a really disgusting display by the Democrats, go back and watch that video 
and you'll see a bunch of butthurt, bitchy Democrats acting mad at Dennis Kucinich for using the floor time to read these articles of impeachment. And they're walking out, like shaking their head in anger at him doing this. These are Democrats. What a disgrace. People are monsters. What a goddamn disgrace. Yeah, I mean, I'll just, let me just wrap up this Russiagate thing. I mean, I think, uh, you know, what we're going to find at the end of this is just more partisan nonsense. Trump is going to use this to generate red meat for his base to try to win in 2020. And unfortunately, he does have a point in the sense that this was sort of an unfair concocted investigation that was probably originally started through shady, bizarre means that actually should be explored. Like, how, mm-hmm. how did this even get started? You mm-hmm. know, because for, for you and me, we've been following this anti-Russian hysteria for so long that to us, Russiagate just seemed like the, like a, like the last stage of a growing propaganda campaign. It's almost like Trump stood in the firing line of like a giant, like moving beast that was like already just like trying to eat up all these different things in Washington, D.C. And that's the best, you know, that's like the best case scenario. I don't, I, and I'm not absolving Trump of like being a conducting criminal activity or you know, being totally corrupt. I'm just saying that I never, you know, bought it, um, that he was coordinating with Russia in some way. I mean, the outcome of this is I think that just the Republicans are smart enough to know that they can't interview anybody from Washington Free Beacon, or if they do, they just have to softball them. And the Democrats, you know, might actually be savvy enough where if they got a chance to question people from the Washington Free Beacon, they might ask them explicit details that might reveal things that will be unsavory for the GOP to hear. So... That narrative has to stick that the Washington Free Beacon is just completely independent of Trish Steele, had nothing to do with it. Even though we know Glenn Simpson of Fusion GPS was like super obsessed with this Russia Trump theory, someone concocted this. Obviously, it was not the Democrats by themselves. Obviously, they use it and weaponize it against Trump later on, but I believe it was done from like think tank policy wonk people and neocons and even like intelligence people retired or even current who knows it's not a deep state coup it's almost more interesting than that in a a weird way (laughs) i don't even know i mean well that's why media roots radio is different because we've been covering what trump has actually been doing instead of getting wrapped up into this partisan nonsense this tribalistic russiagate fervor that's hijacked the entire dialogue and has everyone just thinking that this is how trump's going to be pushed out of power So keep listening to Media Roots Radio. We will keep covering what's really happening and also telling the movement's perspective because that's what we need. We need a um, actual renaissance. We need a resurgence of like an actual political movement in the streets fighting the crux of these policies because we know that they're continuous despite who's, um, you know, who's president. And we know that Biden, if he does win, he's going to be pushing the same exact policies um, just with a smiley face. And we won't see the same like neo-Nazi resurgence maybe that we have been, but like it's not going to stop. Keep listening to Media Roots Radio, guys, because we're, we're one of the only ones kind of, you know, parsing through this in the correct way, I think. Um, and I hope to keep doing it. And with your support, we will keep doing it. So patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio. Yeah, thanks for all your support, guys. And um, we're trying to run a little goal right now. 
on the on our Patreon where uh, we would like to be able to provide uh, detailed show notes for every episode um, with hyperlinks and stuff like that. When we reach our goal of uh, 500 subscribers, we're gonna start doing that. So, so yeah, and there's some exclusive content on there too. We don't we we're gonna be doing more patron-only content, but there'll still be a lot of free content for everybody. Thanks, guys. Yeah.